We're going to talk this morning, I'm going to talk to you about our awesome God. This is the seventh part of that mini-series, and I think it probably is going to be the last part, but it's in two parts. So it's one this week and one next week. Because what I want to talk about is three in one. I want to talk about the mystery of the Trinity. And in a moment we're going to be reading a passage, but before I do, just want to give you a little mini-history lesson. Just get your imagination In 1492, Christopher Columbus sailed out across what we call the Atlantic Ocean looking for Asia. And uh, actually it was very bold and brave. The explorers of those years were very uh, brave people because they didn't really know where they were going. They didn't know, some of them, whether they'd fall off the edge of the earth. Although I think the general opinion was more towards a globe by the time some of them were sailing. But they were going out into the unknown. Now, Christopher Columbus was to discover America, but he didn't actually first reach America. He re- reached, the first land he came across was a series of islands, and he thought he'd found Asia. So those islands are called the West Indies today because he thought he'd got the west side of the Indies. But when they were sailing after months at sea and seeing nothing, as they were sailing along, they suddenly saw three beautiful islands on the horizon. Green humps, clearly uh, good vegetation. Three beautiful islands quite close together. And as they sailed towards these, the first land they'd seen for months, showing that there was something there, they weren't going to fall over the edge. As they sailed towards them, they realised that actually they weren't three islands. It was one island with three very similar mountains, all very beautiful. The three beautiful islands were actually one beautiful island with three beautiful mountains. And Columbus called that island Trinidad. And Trinidad was the Spanish for Trinity. So the island is called Trinity Island. Very appropriately, actually, And what we're going to do over this week or two is we're going to just sail a bit closer to something that looks beautiful. From a distance, you think there's three here, aren't there? And as you get close, you see, no, there's one. But there's three and one. And it's a whole whole thing. The Trinity. We're going to sail towards our Trinidad in the next few minutes now and next week. Let's read a passage in the New Testament. Ephesians 1 and... I just want you to look at verses 3 to 14. And as we read it, it's a glorious passage anyway. You will notice how just in the dynamic of Scripture, you will touch God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But we're not reading it purely for some academic interest. This is a wonderful passage of Scripture. So let's turn and read Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. 
and he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfilment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now, it's a wonderful passage. And actually, when you read it, you wouldn't say it says anything about the Trinity. What what are we talking about? But actually, the Trinity truth is woven into those truths. And for what we've just read, and it is marvellous and it needs unpacking on another occasion, to be true and to be enjoyed, God must be triune. And we'll see that as we go through. Now, the doctrine of the Trinity starkly contrasts with the other great monotheistic religions of Judaism and Islam. And in fact, has brought Christianity, obviously, over the years in a conflict there. These three big religions that all sort of relate to one God, they differ in many areas, but the most stark difference is that Christians understand God to be one God, three persons. Now, we're going to need to think about that hard, not only today, but next week as well. And I'll try and apply it more and more to our lives as we get closer to it. Today, we're just going to let Scripture begin to open our hearts and our minds. You see, if you deny aspects of the Trinity, saying that Jesus Christ is not God, deny the deity of Christ, or deny the deity of the Holy Spirit, he's just a force, he's just got some energy... If you do that, you undermine the gospel. And actually, that is what heretics and heretical cults have done since the beginning of church history. Right back in the third century, there were a group called Arians, Arianism. And what they taught was pretty well what modern Jehovah Witnesses teach. That the the one God, Jehovah, Jesus Christ was a created being, like a super angel. And that the Holy Spirit is a sort of force. And once you do that, you're into heresy, that is not the Christian gospel. Not because you're not ticking a lot of boxes. We don't test people like that. Do they understand this like an exam or you've failed? But because if you don't hold to these truths, you're not holding to biblical truth. And you will not enjoy a biblical salvation. It's a different gospel if you don't understand these things. And don't understand how the Trinity is true. But actually, we Christians who fully believe the truths can often struggle to understand and explain it. So you will get good Christians who will say that the Son and the Spirit are just part of God. So like God is a third Father, a third Spirit, a third Son. That's not how it is. I'll tell you that now. Some people will say, well, the Holy Spirit's an it. And they'll slip into terminology of an it. He's not an it. He's a he. He's God. Others can talk of God as as Jesus, I beg your pardon, as a God-filled man. That's not quite the way to describe him. He's not a God-filled man. He is God become man. Some Christians talk so much of the Father, Son and Spirit separate 
that it sounds like three gods working together. And indeed, by the way, Mormons would teach it is three gods, which is another heresy because it's one God. Some talk as if God were one person wearing different hats, like me, John Groves. I'm a pastor, I can be a husband and a father. Now, actually, when I was a young Christian, that's how the way I tried to describe the Trinity until I found out that was modalism and is another heresy. So I quickly changed my way of putting it. But it, it may be a helpful way of sometimes trying to understand something, but it's not what God is. He is not one person wearing several hats. Otherwise, the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan was a conjuring trick with a bit of ventriloquism thrown in. As Jesus went through the water, he said, Hello, that's my beloved son. He threw his voice, came out of the clouds, and the dove came out of his arm sleeve. Or something. You know, no, there is something about three persons, one being, one God. So because it is hard to grasp and understand, perhaps a little reasonably, Christians often don't want to discuss it They find it difficult to talk about, divisive maybe, say, is it important? So what? Does it matter? And maybe a sort of telling argument, you don't find the word Trinity in the Bible, do you? No, you don't find the word Trinity in the Bible. But it is a term used to affirm truths that are repeatedly in the Bible and dominate the whole of the New Testament. The term Trinity doesn't explain what is actually a profound mystery. But it does make sure we affirm and declare it as a truth. That mystery is this, and these are the words of an ancient Christian creed, possibly going back to the first century. The Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, and the Holy Spirit is Lord. And yet not three lords, but one Lord. Now that ancient truth is what the Trinity affirms. If you deny that truth, you lose the gospel. But I have to say, you don't have to understand it intellectually to be saved. Praise the Lord. (laughs) In that scripture that was read to us earlier, uh, Chris, I think, read to us, uh, mysteriously, Jesus talked about eating my flesh, drinking my blood. I I think you might have heard in my prayer, because it it is just after that, if not in the bit Chris read, that Jesus, people turn their backs and say, we can't handle this, we're not going to follow this. And, And Jesus turned and said to the disciples, I think, are you also going to leave? And they said no. And then Jesus rebuked people, this is the point, for not believing his words. Not for not understanding them, for not believing them. And there is a difference. It's not we throw our brains away, but sometimes we receive and believe what God tells us about himself, and we don't have to have totally grasped it with our own intellect in order to do that. And it's not an intellectual exercise being a Christian. It is an exercise of faith. Let's use an illustration relevant to the Trinity. If you climb up a mountain on a pathway up a steep mountain, it's quite possible to climb that mountain without really noticing it or studying it or probably even knowing its name. And you can enjoy the walk and you can enjoy the views and the challenge. And when you believe in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and receive him as your saviour and believe him to be God manifest in the flesh, all the Bible says about him, you're born again of the Holy Spirit, filled with the Spirit, you're in effect taking a journey up a mountain. And that mountain is called the Trinity. To be saved 
You don't necessarily need to fully understand the name of the mountain or how it all works. But the whole time you are travelling up or into the Trinity. When you become a Christian, that is the journey you're taking. God as the Son has made it possible for you to be saved. God the Spirit is living in you and changing you. God the Father is your Father and planned it. And you are enjoying, you're totally on this mountain. You're in the environment. You are surrounded by this mountain. And you may be a bit struggling to understand it or, or to name it, but that's what you're in. Now, it is better if you know more about the mountain. It is better if you understand it. And, and have a name for it. You can enjoy it more. You can have a better journey ultimately. And so that's a, why it's worth looking at this and trying to understand it. The God we love, the God we obey, the God we worship is one God and yet three persons. Another definition of this simple truth, sort of creedal definition, is like this. A little longer. God the Father is God. God the Son is God. God the Holy Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. Nevertheless, there is only one God. Now, that is the truth. That's the truth that the Bible lays before us. It may seem baffling to the human intellect. To other religions, perhaps the great monotheistic rivals of Judaism and Islam, it seems nonsense and suicidal. You're ruining it. But it is true and it is about the mystery of God and his awesome otherness. If we're looking at our awesome God, this is perhaps one of its pinnacles, the awesome nature of God. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones makes this point about the Trinity. No doctrine shows more clearly our absolute dependence upon the revelation we have in Scripture. The doctrine of the Trinity comes directly from the Bible. Men and women have thought of God. They have their gods. But no one has ever thought of the Trinity. And he's got a point. You wouldn't think it up It is obviously revelation. (laughs) It's not a man-made God. Because how would you formulate a doctrine like this from human intellect? Why would you do it? It would make so much more sense to just stick with a clear one-one thing. What are the risks of this, of causing confusion and offence? They're considerable. Doesn't it lead to people rejecting the faith that might otherwise not? Can't we think of God in simpler, cleaner or less controversial ways? So actually, the very weight of this mystery shows its sort of revelatory nature. It's not something thought up by human mind. The Christian faith stands or falls on what we call the doctrine of the Trinity. And it's the centre and heart of our faith. It's only if God is triune that we can be sure that what the Bible teaches us is true that God is personal and relational. Now, we'll actually explore that more next week because it's quite exciting. Because if this is true, and I believe it is, clearly, what the Bible says, this means some very precious things about the nature of God. And I'm excited. I want to stop now and do next week's sermon. I'm not going to. God is personal and relational. He wants to be known by us and he understands relationship. 
It's only if God is triune that the true gospel of our total salvation in and through Jesus Christ that we read, for example, in Ephesians 1 is absolutely true. Ephesians 1 is one of many scriptures which illustrates that. That our salvation has the practical, real engagement of every person of the Trinity. For example, God the Father is praised by Paul in verses 3 to 6. We're not going to do an exposition of this passage, but it's true. God the Father's part is praised. God the Son in verses 7 to 12. And God the Holy Spirit in verses 13 to 14 of what we just read. Salvation is administered by the Father, accomplished by the Son, and applied to our lives by the Holy Spirit. The one God in his three persons, saves us. Administered by the Father, accomplished by the Son, and applied by the Holy Spirit. Now, Peter, John, Paul could never have thought this up, as Martin Lloyd-Jones hints. It's not a human concept, a three-in-one God. They were driven to these truths. And this is a key, key fact for understanding this. The New Testament writers, the first church, the early church, the Christian disciples, the apostles themselves, were driven to these truths by the inescapable implications of what they heard and what they experienced and witnessed. They witnessed things when Jesus was on earth. They recorded what they witnessed. They saw things in his teaching, in his miracles. They heard things taught by him. They saw his death. They saw the risen Lord Jesus and met him. They saw him ascend. They experienced the day of Pentecost. And out of all this, they were Trinitarian. It's not a doctrine, it was their experience. Someone has well put it, the New Testament writers were experiential Trinitarians. And that is the key to the whole thing. It isn't a doctrine of the mind, just somebody sat in his cave or sat in his ivory tower and was philosophized about what God's like. It is actually the experience of Christians. God is Trinitarian, is our experience. This Jesus Christ is God. The Father speaks from heaven. We've experienced the Holy Spirit. We know God with us and in us. They're all the Lord. We are experiential, if you like, Trinitarians. It's not a philosophy, it's an experience. The Trinity is an experience, like our mountain. It's not just a philosophy. All right, let's sail a little closer to our Trinidad. I want to look at just three uh, things quite briefly this morning. And they, it's biblical, just look at the Bible. The word Lord, the Lord. Because it gives you a key to how this experience, how this revelation, as it were, impacts people. First of all, let's think about the Lord God. The Lord God. In the Old Testament, God is predominantly called the Lord. All through the Old Testament, that phrase, that title will come for God. It means the owner, the master, the governor. Time and again, unequivocal message. Here it is, Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. There is one God, the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, the God of the whole earth, the creator, the ruler, the judge, the source and the goal of all that exists, the beginning and the end. We've been looking at some of his attributes over these recent months. Again and again, 
when Israel or individuals are sceptical or doubting in the Old Testament, God answers him then with phrases like this. These are taken out from Exodus 6, but they come again and again. I am the Lord. God says, don't fear, I am the Lord. It's very personal, one pronoun, the first person pronoun. I am the Lord. I will bring you out. I will free you. I will be with you. I will redeem you. I will take you as my own people. I will be your God. I am the Lord. Again and again. Now let's go on and think of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the Lord God, Old Testament. The Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the Old Testament monotheism is totally endorsed by Jesus. I'd like you to look at a couple of verses. It won't take you long. Just Mark 12 and verse 29. Just look at a couple of verses. First of all, Mark 12 and verse 29. Jesus quotes, and he says, The most important commandment, answered Jesus, the most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And Jesus is very strong in reinforcing that. I'll give you one other reference from Jesus. John 5. If you can't find these things quickly, don't worry. If you're familiar with the Bible, as many of you are, just turn to it. John 5 and verse 44. This is quite an interesting one, particularly if you look at the margin as well. John 5 and verse 44. Jesus Speaking, how can you believe if you accept praise from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God, or our margin will say the only one? Jesus emphasizes there is only one God. That is emphasized again and again by Jesus, and it's emphasized by the New Testament writers. We could again turn to many passages. We'll take one verse Galatians 3. And verse 20. Galatians 3 and verse 10, 20. This is in context of the gospel and about Jesus and his role. You might notice that, but look at verse 20. It's all we need to read. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Again and again, it's very clear. These people are not nutty. They are saying, Jesus is saying, the only one. Here writing, even about Jesus' role in the gospel, but the God, but God is one. So the monotheism is not lost at all. But amazingly, and this is important why I took up the word Lord, amazingly in the New Testament, the word Lord, which is a title so frequently used for God in the Old Testament, its equivalent is used for Jesus Christ. And he's again and again called the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's used for him more than for the one to whom he is praying, for example. Now, sometimes people say, well, doesn't that just mean a respect? Lord means sir. Well, occasionally it does, but people who translate the Bible know what they're doing. And quite often when you see it in large print or a capital L, that isn't the word just like respect. That is the word Lord. That's the word meaning governor, ruler, the word used for God. And actually, quite explicitly, again and again, In your New Testament, there will be quotes from the Old Testament about the Lord, which are applied to Jesus Christ. We'll look at just one. Romans 10. Just flick to Romans 10. These are important truths to understand, the experience. This is our mountain. This is our island. Romans 10. And let's just look at verses uh, 9 to 13. 
And here's an example, you see. Verse 9, Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is the Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scriptures say, anyone who trusts in him will be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now that is actually mingling together Old Testament quotes about the Lord and applying them to Jesus Christ as the Lord who fulfills that Old Testament prophecy. In other words, when the Old Testament is saying, if you call on the Lord and the Lord will do this, it's referring to, say the New Testament, Jesus who is the Lord who saves you and you call on his name. He is the Lord. Jesus is Lord. And that would come out again and again. We'll have one more. I can't resist it. 1 uh, Corinthians 8 and verse 6, I think it is. 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 6. Because it's almost they tumble the phrases together. Uh, you, you needn't worry too much about the context. It's about eating food to idols and other religions and things. But verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 8. And yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, capital L, Jesus Christ, through, through whom all things came and through whom we live. <laughs> what? You see, this is not an intellectual exercise. This is, this one God has come to us in this one Lord, Jesus Christ. It's wonderful. And it's exciting. Now, I could add many, many examples from Scripture where in the New Testament, that's like that. Jesus is worshipped. He's prayed to. These are things you only do for God, but they're not wrong. And Jesus himself doesn't reject them when people worship him. Multiple times in the New Testament, Jesus is given ascribed divine attributes. He's spoken of as the Lord. The men who wrote our New Testament, the vast majority of them, were Jews. They were Old Testament monotheists. That's what they were brought up in. There is nevertheless an unambiguous deity of Christ Jesus that comes through everything they do. They had experienced that Jesus Christ is the Lord. This is the Lord. Manifest among us, walking amongst us. An inexplicable mystery with inescapable implications from from what happened. Okay, let's go on to the third one. The Lord God, the Lord, uh, the Son, Jesus, and the Lord, the Spirit. If you've got your Bible still open, I hope you have, you turn to 2 Corinthians now. 2 Corinthians 3. Let the Scriptures speak for themselves. 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 16. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 16. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord... Capital L, the veil is taken away. Now look at 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. (laughs) Bang goes another fuse in your brain box. I can see them flickering as I look out there. Quite, how does this work? 
You don't work it out that way. You receive it. The Lord is the Spirit. There are things we can talk about. We'll touch them a little bit, touch them a bit next week. But it's not all about a philosophy, a brain exercise. There are things we can say. The big thing is, he's God, we're human beings. We'll look at this a little more next week. There is a big difference between being a human being and being God. Just as like there's a big difference between being a human being and being a tree, which you can recognise. God, in his being, is three persons. And when we have the Holy Spirit with us, hear this, we have God with us. The Lord is the Spirit. The Lord is the Spirit. The Spirit of Christ. The Lord is with you. Jesus said, it's better I go away. How can it be better you go away, Lord? It's great to have you, the Lord Jesus, walking here amongst us. We've got God with us. It's better I go away. You can have God in you. The Lord is the Spirit. The Father and I will come to you. It's all woven in there. Make a home with you, dwell with you. The Holy Spirit who lives in us and is transforming us is the Lord. The Lord God. The Lord Jesus. The one Lord. Here's another little fact about the Holy Spirit. And it is quite remarkable when you notice these things. The title holy is regularly used for expressing the godness of God in the Old Testament. God is holy course. That title is a God phrase. We've touched it in our, in our um, little series. It's something particularly appropriate to God. The Godness of God. Associated completely with the Lord God. But in the New Testament, the title holy is not mostly applied to the Father or to the Son, but to the Holy Spirit. So it's like a particular God title is uniquely applied to the Spirit. Rather like Lord comes to Jesus more often in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit is clearly a person. He's often given a masculine pronoun in the Greek against the ordinary rules of grammar, quite clumsily, I understand. He has personal titles like counsellor, advocate, helper. He's described as having affections, will, intelligence. Most of the actions ascribed to the Holy Spirit are those that are performed by a person, not a force. Deciding, forbidding, sending, interceding, speaking. This is a person being grieved, being pleased. (laughs) This is a person we're talking about. He's clearly a divine person. He's linked with the Father and the Son in prayer. He's linked to the Father and Son in that tripersonal name that Jesus talks about, Matthew 28, 19, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he's so closely linked with Jesus that he can be called Christ in you. The Holy Spirit is Christ in you. So God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not one and the same person, but one and the same being. In God... You could be one being and three persons. That's true. That's how it is. And God has progressively revealed that through the scriptures, but also through history. It's not merely through a book. This isn't a philosophical treatise with a great new idea. It's revelation. It's experience of God. And as it comes, so it becomes clear, this is God with us. 
This is how it, it works. This is how God does it. I want to finish this before we go on. We're going to go on in a moment just to worship and break bread because that's one of the responses you need to this truth. But I want to give you a quote from Jim Packer. It's almost like I'd like you to listen to it like me speaking because it's a reasonably long quote because I just think he puts it very well and I, I better give him credit. Otherwise, I could have read it and pretended it was me. But I'm not doing that. So let's, let's, this is our sort of concluding thought. So do listen to it. The gospel says that there was in God from eternity mutuality of life and joy. That men and women were made to share this fellowship. That when sin had made this impossible, God came in person, the second person, sent by the first person and empowered by the third person. He came to save us that God made flesh, died for us, lives for us, and unites us to himself, brings us to the Father now, and will take us one day to share his glory. The Gospel teaches that a divine guest, the Holy Spirit, indwells each Christian to prompt them in prayer and to transform our fallen nature. And that Jesus Christ is companion and friend to every single believer, giving her or him constant, undistracted attention. It is surely obvious that none of these marvellous, almost fantastic things could be said save on the supposition that Father, Son and Holy Spirit are one God. In other words, that God is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. That is how God is. Those who deny the Trinity have to scale down the Gospel. And they do. That's right. You scale it right down. You have to worship him who is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. You sail right up to this wonderful thing. You say, it's not three, it's one. And yet there's three elements. Or if you like, our mountain. You begin to say, I'm surrounded by the Trinity. This is God in me. This is the Lord. It's the Spirit. <laughs> it's wonderful. And, and Jesus, my, my Saviour, is the Lord. God died for me. He, he suffered. God made flesh. Suffered for me. And, and God the Father loves me and brings me to himself. And this triune God has been totally absorbed in the process of bringing my redemption. And is now bringing me into a relationship with him. And he understands relationships more than any of us do. Because he is, in himself, a holy, perfect balance of relationship. He is a community. He is a family, if you like. And we'll touch this next week. Because next week, we're going to look a little more at... What is important for us about this doctrine? What does it tell us about God and about us? But this week, I want us to end by just worshipping God. That's what we're doing this week. So if David and the band could come up. We're just going to worship. We've got about 20 minutes or so. It's a little tighter on time than I'd have liked, but obviously the reason's clear. We had lots of important and exciting things in the middle of the meeting. But, but that's plenty of time. It's not too bad at all. We've got time to worship God, and we're going to take bread and wine together. And when we take this bread and wine later, we'll be remembering this wonderful triune God who saved us through he himself 
coming and dying for us. God manifest in the flesh, the man who was God, the God-man, Jesus. And uh, we're going to know that the Holy Spirit, God is with us now. The Lord is with us. And he's going to manifest himself amongst us, just perhaps speaking to one heart here, another there, telling us that he loves us, opening our eyes to truth. That's what I want to happen when we're preaching these words and when we're worshipping and breaking bread.